Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And today, it is my pleasure to host writer, actor, and entrepreneur, among many other things. The incredible Erica M. is with me this week. Erica, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. I'm so happy to do it for you. <laughs> so, I'm not being facetious. I'm serious. I, th- I think that's awesome. <laughs> I grew up watching you on Much Music, so this is a big deal for me. Well, I, I will try and not to disappoint. You know what they say, never meet the people that you grew up watching, because they're sure to disappoint. So <laughs> I will do my best to entertain and regale you with amazing stories and shock you with the songs of my choice. Wow. This will be above my expectations then. This is, this is fantastic. <laughs> All right. So as I said, I grew up watching you as one of the original VJs on Much Music here in Canada. I'm sure a number of my Canadian listeners also did. But after that, um, I want to say it was probably about eight or nine years, your stint on Much, you did some really amazing things. So you, for example, launched a record label. You wrote songs that earned you Junos. You wrote books. You hosted a couple of other TV shows. You founded two, not just one, two successful companies, M&Co and Yummy Mommy Club. And you also began a speaking career. That's pretty impressive. I like to keep busy. (laughs) I like to make something from nothing. I don't watch a lot of television, ironically. Um, I just like to make things and do things and collaborate with people. That's, That's what makes my skin vibrate. Mm. And uh, so I've been very proactive and a lot of people have reached out to me and I don't know, I've had just a very creative life and I'm hoping that that's only going to increase in the coming years. I think it will. It almost seems like one thing kind of leads to another with you. You get involved in something and then it kind of turns into something else, right? 100%. Very astute. You're right. Yeah. You're an entrepreneur, Erica. I'm also, uh, I'm an opportunist. Mm. And I believe that there is a negative connotation that has been given to that word Mm. where it implies that you're sort of standing on the shoulders of others Mm. in order to get ahead. But the way I look at being an opportunist is finding these mutually beneficial opportunities to collaborate and great things happen when unique people come together with different skills. And as long as both parties are willing to throw in and do their part, you can do amazing things. See, I, I totally agree with that. In my line of work, hey, I can hear a seagull in the background. <laughs> so I'm sitting that? on the deck of my boathouse. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, in our line of work, because I'm also an entrepreneur, I find that it's a blessing when you find those people that you can actually collaborate with and, and it's kind of a win-win outcome because oftentimes it's, it can be difficult, you know, because people are out there and, and they can be on the take often. Well, here's something very interesting that I've discovered through the years is many people come to me with opportunities. Mm-hmm. I usually say yes. And a minute number of people actually follow through. Hmm. And it's the people that you just don't expect are the ones where big things happen, in my experience, which is why I never say no to anyone, because even though they appear to be, you know, in quotation marks, not really important, (laughs) (laughs) um, they are the ones who have the tenacity or some sort of secret weapon Mm -hmm. 
that allows like huge programs or opportunities or concepts to come to life. So I'm, I'm all about saying yes. Mm-hmm. And um, even if I can't do it, even if I don't have the skills or the capabilities or the knowledge, I'll say yes. And then I'll be thrown in the deep end and I'll freaking figure it out. Wow. And that's how I grow. Yeah, absolutely. But that's a, that's a massive leap on your part. It's, it's not yeah, easy. But that's how you learn. Like I'm not in school anymore. I left school very young and I crave learning. I crave it. So the only way I can learn is by putting myself in situations where I don't know how to do something. Mm-hmm. I, I'm like a sponge. <laughs> now, would you say that that was how you got into much music? Because I know that you had just auditioned and, and I want to say it was kind of a last minute thing. You threw your hat in the ring and, and there you were. Uh, no, that is absolutely incorrect. Oh. You lose five points for that question. <laughs> I was doing so well. <laughs> um, from the time I was 15, mm-hmm. I knew I had to be in the music business. Okay. I think it was the day that I hung up my Frampton Comes Alive poster in my bedroom beside nice. my Elton John and David Cassidy posters. Yeah, And I always, from that point on, had my eye to how can I connect with these magicians mm-hmm. who are musicians and find out what is the magic that inspires them to create this alchemy that makes our skin tingle. Mm-hmm. And I worked really hard. So by the time I was 16, I was already working at the local, at my university or colleges. I was at CJEP at the radio station there. Mm-hmm. I ran the yearbook. It was music-themed, shocking. <laughs> when Shom FM, which was the big rock radio station, had a competition where you can win a free concert with Max Webster. Oh, nice. I freaked out, and I started organizing my school to write ballads in the cafeteria because uh-huh. it was supposed to be, you know, send in a postcard and the school that has the most postcards from students sent to us will win. Well, I went, screw that, man. We're going to we're going to game the system and I'm going to start photocopying <laughs> little postcards and we're going to collect them in ballot boxes. And then I delivered them to Shom FM and those bastards announced <laughs> my idea on the radio. Oh. And so all these big schools with lots of money to buy lots of paper started to do the same thing oh, and we ended no. up not winning. But I didn't give up. Brent, I did not give up. And I organized a march, a protest march from my Sejap, from Marianopolis, down to Green Avenue to Shom FM, screaming, we want Max. We had posters. We had motorcycles, bicycles, cars, honking. <laughs> it was the most fun. I have pictures in my yearbook to this, prove That's it. incredible. And the DJ hung out of the window on the third floor and said, who's in charge? And everybody yelled, Erica. <laughs> and so when I was 16, maybe 17, I was interviewed on Show FM. Oh, okay. Never did get that Max Webster concert. Oh. But I did tell Kim Mitchell that story years later at Much Music when he came in. I said, I want you to know that you changed my life. Wow. Because, oh, probably three months later, I went to see the Cars mm-hmm. perform live at the Montreal Forum, and I was all decked out in the best new wave outfit ever. Okay. 
And I saw Rob Braid, who at that time was the program director at Shoma FM, and he was one of the people who let me into the building. Hmm. So I marched right up to him and I said, hi, Rob, my name's Erica. Can I have a job at Shoma? <laughs> he was a little taken aback. And he said, well, this isn't actually the right time to talk about that. If you'd like, call my assistant and we'll set up an appointment, which I did. And I showed up at Shom FM, heart pounding, and I asked him if I could have a job at Shom. And guess what he said? He said yes. He said no. Oh, uh, no. See, I thought. He said no. Did you not work there as like a well, kind of a, Okay, keep going. Sorry. Because he said, I can't hire you because you're still in school. Oh. However, if you want to work for free and be my music librarian, you can mm. share my office and your responsibility will be to file all the albums that come in. Okay. You can walk in here anytime you want. You get to meet the bands. You get to meet the DJs, learn about the business. Are you up for it? I went, hell yeah. yeah. And sure enough, I started working at Shoma FM when I was, I don't know, 16 or 17. And all the kids at Marianopolis were saying, how did you get that job? I mean, it was really the coolest job in all of Montreal. No kidding. And my answer was very simple. I asked. And that's my life in a nutshell. That's wow. it. So to make a very long story even longer, <laughs> I warned you that I, that I talked a lot. No, please. I had a series of jobs in the music business from the time I was 16. Okay. I started working in clubs, DJing at clubs till three in the morning. My parents let me do it. I worked at record stores. I managed bands. I hosted a, a music video show before MTV even went on air. I mean, I was immersed in the world of the music business. Wow. All my friends were in bands and got my degree at communications in Ottawa University and then got a, a job answering the phones at Much Music. Oh. In fact, I lied. Not even at Much Music. At City TV, there was no Much Music, but That's right. there was a show called The New Music, mm -hmm. which was revolutionary. Yeah. To have alternative music deconstructed on mainstream media was where I had to be. And so I became the entertainment coordinator. I was booking all the shoots. And of course, while I was doing that, you know me, mm -hmm. I have to be busy. So I called up the local cable company in Toronto mm -hmm. and asked them if I can host a show for them. Guess what they said? They said, please do. They said yes. <laughs> and it was Willie Jong, okay. who had never met me before. Uh, I think I was 21 at the time. Okay. And he said, sure, come on down, sight unseen. And so I worked there for a couple of years, again, as a volunteer, made a demo tape, showed it to J.D. Roberts. Oh. And J.D. went, that is terrible. No. <laughs> and he asked the crew to shoot a demo tape with me in the studio. And I gave it to my bosses. Mm -hmm. And they hired me. Uh. So I was on a path. And I was probably one of the most qualified women in Canada yeah. to do that job because I was, I was the real deal. I was obsessed with music. I knew people in the music industry mm -hmm. and I was at the time working at city TV. By the time I was 21, I went on the air when I was 23. Wow. That's mm. why you got the buzzer. Jeez. I feel like I should lose 10 points for that. Not just five. <laughs> <laughs> I I didn't know about all those little intricacies about that parade and all those all those things. That's incredible. I really go after what I want and I do the work. 
I, I just dig in and I'm, I just love to work and I love to watch my vision evolve. And I love working with people. Mm -hmm. I love bubbling something together and everybody throwing in and something fantastic coming out on the other side. I think that's great. You're a true collaborator. I think that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, I look forward to seeing, you know, what's next. Thought you were going to say, "Oh, I look forward to collaborating with you in the future." Well, that is the part we're going to talk about <laughs> off air. <laughs> uh, I would love to do that. We'll uh, we'll talk about that part later. Now, close. Okay. You were um, also a contributor to an organization that I work with directly now, called the Awesome Music Project. And the Awesome Music Project, for people who don't know, uh, raised money to fund research linking music therapy to improve mental health. So you spoke, you contributed a story to their book, which is fantastic. And that's, that's how I kind of got caught up with them was through that book. And then you spoke at their Kitchener event. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's such a fantastic organization mm -hmm. connecting music and mental health and mental well-being because music is a lifeline for many people through this amazing project, which is going to go so far as it hopefully starts to cross country lines and there's like an awesome music, uh, US and the UK, etc., with all these amazing stories in them. Mm -hmm. Important funds are being raised to learn more about how music can help the brain and help with mental illness. My daughter has been struggling for the last almost three years. Mm. When she turned 13, she went dark. Mm -hmm. And she's now at 16, just coming out of it. Oh, wow. And I, I feel great compassion for those who are uh, either struggling with mental illness or caring for people, trying to help people around them who are, who've gone dark. Yeah. So I'm so proud to be part of it just by telling a story. Yeah, no, I, I thought you did a great job that night. I was, I was in attendance and I've always been a big believer in the fact that music has the special ability to elicit an emotional response from people. Clearly, that's what this whole podcast is about. Exactly. And it was funny because somebody put me in touch initially with Rob Carley, who's one of the founders of uh, Awesome Music Project. And uh, they said, you guys have to meet. Like, this is incredible. Because in essence, you guys are really doing the same thing. You talk about the music that makes yep. your skin vibrate. And yep. they want to prove it scientifically. So, yep. you know, it was, it was uh, an easy fit. So, yeah, great that you, um, that you do some work with them too. Well, I think also it... It is incumbent upon me to give back in any way that I can. So those are the kinds of things that are easy for me to do. And if it helps, fantastic. Oh, it, 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 it helped. I read your story in the book. I thought it was great. Yeah, me and Tim. Well, again, sometimes I tell stories of things that happen in my life, but I tell them for a reason. Mm -hmm. uh, the story I told in the book was about how this amazingly incredible person came into my life. His name's Tim Thorny. Mm -hmm. He is one of the most talented songwriters. And he invited me to join him as a songwriting partner. Well, just to write a song. And then eventually we became partners for 10 years. We wrote about 300 songs and we ended up starting a record label together and working with artists. And it was one of the happiest times of my life for mm. sure. And I specifically remember the time that we finished writing and recording an album for Cassandra Vasek. Mm -hmm. And Cassandra Vasek 
was not a songwriter, but she was just an incredible vocalist. She sang with such emotion. So Tim and I wrote all of her songs. The songs were, for the most part, my life story. Mm. And I poured my heart into it. And then we went into the studio and Tim produced the album. I was sort of his second set of ears because I don't know how to produce music, but I just know what sounds good. And is this song coming out the way we envisioned it? Mm-hmm. When the song, when the album was completely done, we sat in the recording studio together. We turned all the lights off and we listened to the album in the darkness together. Mm. And at the end of it, he said, M, it never gets better than this. Mm. And what he meant was when you collaborate or if you do it on your own, you create art, you create art for yourself. It resonates with you. It makes your skin vibrate. Mm -hmm. And then it gets unleashed to the rest of the world. No matter what they say, it doesn't matter because we did it. We made something we believed in. And that has stuck with me as a creator, as an artist, as a writer, as an entrepreneur. Not everybody likes what I do. Not everybody likes me, but that's okay because I'm doing what I love and I'm true to my vision. Mm-hmm. And I hope that that message resonates with other people. So, And you don't have to be a songwriter, but we all make things in our life and do things. And we do them because we want to do them, not to impress other people. You're absolutely right. You know, I've always been a big believer also in the fact that we love the art that we do because we can see ourselves inside it a little bit, you know? 100%. Yeah, that's you know what I, I love about that and, and how you did that and when is that, you know, you were on Much and obviously you interacted with a gazillion musicians. And after that was over, you said, you know what, I can do that. And you went and did it. Well, it was, it was during Much, actually. I was still working at Much. Uh, and... Um, Actually, do you want to hear the crazy story? Sure, of course. So I was working at Malt, it was 1989, mm-hmm. and I discovered that I was being paid significantly less than the men. Shocking. Oh, yeah, you, you mentioned that in Kitchener. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went to my bosses, or my boss, mm-hmm. and I said, I, I'd like a raise. And he said, no. Mm-hmm. Why? Because I was difficult to work with. <laughs> I wanted tell you something if there's one thing that i'm not it's difficult to work with yeah so i told him to fuck off literally and walked out of that office and quit good and went home and bawled crying (laughs) because i just quit the best job in the world but on principle don't, don't do that i've poured my heart and soul into my job on much music and what i was asking for was reasonable and fair so um I called up my friend Tim, crying, mm-hmm. and uh, Tim said, well, M, can, can you write a song? I was like, I don't know. He <laughs> said, come over, we'll write a song. He was just trying to be a nice nice guy. Yeah. Well, we wrote a song. He was like, M, that's pretty good. Want to try another? Okay. And from so from 1989, I was writing songs with Tim. Mm. And one of the highlights of my life was the night that I hosted the Juno's Mm pre-show because I was a host on Much Music and I presented an award to me and Cassandra. That's so great. (laughs) Best country album. Yeah. Or best country art, a female country artist. So that was me wearing both hats at the same time. 
So I, I was a songwriter for five years while I worked at Much. Uh, okay, I thought you did it shortly after, but that that was what I was impressed with, is that, you know, you wrote the song, that's one thing, but you actually earned a Juno for it, which is no small achievement. Yeah, we earned, we earned a few Junos. Yeah. And um, songwriter awards, country music awards. We, we won quite a few awards together, Tim and I. Mm-hmm. And um, I, like I said, my collaboration with Tim is at the top of my list in terms of musical magical experiences. We just would walk into a room. Our egos were not in the room with us. And we came out with something special each time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he is just a great guy. Music just pours out of him. And words just pour out of me. Mm-hmm. And it worked. Yeah. Well, one of those songs is uh, on your list. And we're going to get to that in a second. But before we do that, this is pretty cool how you and I came to talk. So your husband, Terry, and I are friends. And last week on the show, I talked about the final days of Kurt Cobain's life. And so after the episode aired, Terry sent me a note and said, dude, did you know that Erica was one of Kurt Cobain's last interviews? My response was all the more reason to get her on the show, right? Because he and I had talked about that before and I just never had followed up and and putting this whole thing together. But the more I thought about a, how great a follow-up to the Cobain episode that would be, but B, how cool it would be to have Erica M on the show, I reached out. And now you're here the following week. Yeah, the Kurt Cobain interview has been a surprisingly important part of my life. Hmm. Now, I was not a particularly big fan of the band, but I was the one sent to Seattle to interview him. That's what happens. You just get assigned mm-hmm. bands when you worked at much. Sometimes you would beg for bands. I didn't beg for Nirvana. And I flew to Seattle. It was a junket, meaning that there were other journalists from around the world set up in this nondescript hotel mm-hmm. in Seattle. And for a rock and roll interview, those nondescript hotel rooms are the worst. <laughs> so my plan was to catch him off guard and make him see me as a person, not just another media person. Because essentially they go from room to room. Mm-hmm. And it's like mind numbing for them. So he walked in the room and I said, hey, my name's Erica. Do you want to do the interview in the bed Mm. or on the balcony? And I saw him see me and look flustered and went uh, on the balcony. And I was like, cool, let's go. Mm -hmm. And so uh, my cameraman, I believe, was Basil. And we set up outside. And the way interviews were done at that time, it's a one camera shoot. So Basil had the camera um, on his shoulder. And the whole interview is looking at Kurt Cobain from over my shoulder. Mm-hmm. The strategy as an interviewer, which is different than a podcast, for example, at the time was the interviewer can say whatever they want because the camera is only on the guest. And then after the guest, usually after the guest leaves, we do what's called reasks, mm-hmm. which is you ask the questions in a more refined way. And the editor glues the question and answer together Ah. with the two different angles. So my uh, strategy to interview Kurt Cobain was to ask him questions that I thought other people wouldn't talk about, but also be very low key and in quotation marks, not professional. Mm -hmm. So he didn't get his back up because I know that he doesn't like authority. Right. And I know that he doesn't like mainstream media. So I wanted to be neither of those in his eyes. Well, it worked. Conversation was great. 
he really let his guard down. I surprised him by making the first question about the books he likes to read. Mm-hmm. So it was it was really a great conversation. And two months later, he killed himself. Two months later. The interview later. became especially poignant because I asked him, like, why would you bring a child into this ugly world that you sing about? And he talked about how happy he was and how much in love he was. And, you know, there was a lot of things when you look, you know, from that perspective, that made it especially sad. Years later, when there was such a thing as YouTube, mm-hmm. someone had stolen the master tape oh. or copied it or something. So someone posted it on YouTube without the, without the, um, my questions in there. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it's just the, the shot is only on him. And, you know, the cameraman is doing all these crazy angles because we knew there'd be cutaways and B-roll, et cetera. You're not supposed to see this is the raw material. Oh, see, I was wondering about that. Yeah. So you're not supposed to see that. But it has become the most famous interview that he's ever done. Mm -hmm. There's literally millions and millions of of views on YouTube accounts around the world. Mm -hmm. And I found out from Chum that it is the most lucrative interview they've ever done wow. because they keep on reselling footage from that interview. Oh, wow. Yeah, I looked, I, I saw it on YouTube and it was approaching 9 million views. That's just one account. There, it, it shows up on many other accounts. Wow, incredible. You know, the thing that struck me immediately was that knowing that Kurt Cobain could be a difficult interview, I, I felt like you did a really good job of making him feel at ease by asking him that question about yeah. his books. And he kind of opened up a little bit. He yes. it was almost, almost like he was relieved, you know? Well, it's interesting when, if you go to my website, ericam.com, uh, there's a whole article that I wrote about, which I'm not going to talk about now, so everyone <laughs> can just go and look at it, which is my insights in how to conduct a good interview, which you are already doing, um, using that Kurt Cobain interview as the basis for it. Mm. I recommend that people go and have a look at that because, you know, you expect a certain thing. And like you said, you know, people are, are maybe a little bit stuffy and professional and they've got their questions all ready for him and their questions he's already answered three million times. And, you know, he says something really cool in the interview. You said, you know, I'm surprised he's a really nice guy because... You know, you've given difficult interviews before, and he said he looked at you very earnestly and said, "What?" Well, but we've never met before, and he just he just completely opened up to you. And I thought, like, he showed this vulnerability that was so great. I thought that was yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a pretty awesome interviewer, and it's <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of sad that I don't have a platform at this point to use those skills, but um, maybe one day collaboration erica (laughs) (laughs) actually i'm working on a podcast oh that um it's going to launch in the next couple of months probably Mm -hmm. it's called reinvention of the vj oh so it's it's essentially me interviewing all the on-air people from much music i like that about who they were before what life was like during Mm. and then how they reinvented from their time at Much. Oh, wow. What they did, how their skills at Much Music helped them, how their, um, you know, the sort of trail of Much Music notoriety may have negatively affected Mm -hmm. their careers or their lives. So it's 
hopefully will be filled with useful insights from people to who are no doubt going through their own transition thanks to the wonderful pandemic that we're experiencing. A lot of people have lost their jobs or their jobs are no longer relevant. Mm -hmm. They have to pivot. So I'm hoping that by hearing stories of people who you once knew and how they are transitioning and have transitioned over the years will be helpful. Oh, certainly. Obvious question, John Roberts. That is going to be a very interesting one, won't it? All right, that concludes part one of my chat with the wonderful Erica M. Bit of a cliffhanger for you there. The John Roberts we're talking about here is well-known on both sides of the border, albeit almost as completely different people. In Canada, a young J.D. Roberts worked alongside Erica as one of the original BJs on Much Music in the 1980s. But in the U.S., he's now known in a completely different journalistic context. He's Fox News Chief White House Correspondent, John Roberts. All right, tune in next week to hear more about Erica's cool new podcast and, of course, the songs that make her skin vibrate, which we do eventually get to. Don't worry. All right, this has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen, and my very special guest is Erica M. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>